Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, it's been a pretty eventful few days. I think the last time we talked, a lawsuit had been filed by Texas uh, in the Supreme Court. Let's maybe talk a little bit about uh, what has happened since then and uh, bring your listeners up to speed on uh, on your thoughts on, on the uh, how things played out there. Certainly. And yes, the Constitution is still at work, whether it's being interpreted rightly or wrongly, but people are looking to it. And you might remember two things. Number one, that the Constitution delegates to state legislatures the power to set the manner of choosing electors that is holding presidential elections. They set the manner. But the Constitution also delegates to Congress the authority to set the time of the election. In other words, Congress will set the day, but the states will set the state legislatures. I should qualify that. The Constitution specifically says legislatures shall set the manner in which those elections are going to take place. Well, Texas filed a lawsuit against the four states where the election has been contested, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Georgia, And in their lawsuit, which they brought directly into the Supreme Court, because as we'll see when we look to Article 3, the Supreme Court has original rather than appellate jurisdiction over a lawsuit that involves two states against each other. So they brought this lawsuit, which they alleged that there were irregularities in each of these states, and furthermore, that those irregularities took place as a result of procedures adopted by executive officials, for example, in some cases by the election board, in a couple of cases by the Secretary of State. In most states, the Secretary of State sets the election procedures and actually administers the election. But anyway, in those states, the Secretaries of State or the election boards had adopted procedures that were completely at odds with what the state legislatures had provided. For example, well, Michigan has some very strict procedures regarding absentee ballots and advanced voting under limited circumstances. The Secretary of State's office simply sent out unsolicited absentee ballots to every registered voter in the state, and very likely to quite a few that were not registered as well, And anyway, so this was an unlawful usurpation of what was to be legislative authority. And you may recall that a lawsuit was filed in Pennsylvania challenging this. The trial court concluded that all of this was illegal and that those ballots that had been cast pursuant to this advanced election scheme in violation of the U.S. Constitution and of the procedures adopted by the legislature that those ballots were invalid. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania reversed simply on the grounds that the lawsuit should have been brought earlier than it was. They in no way challenged any of the findings concerning irregularity, illegality, or fraud. 
But then the Texas Attorney General filed his lawsuit that many thought might be a real game changer because this was going directly to the Supreme Court. We filed an amicus brief in support of Texas in this case, and we mentioned that, I believe, the last time we had a broadcast. But since that time, quite a number of things happened. First of all, 16, actually, Missouri plus 16 other state attorney generals filed an amicus brief supporting Texas on this. 126 congressmen filed an amicus brief supporting Texas on this. The attorney general of Arizona filed a rather weak brief, but basically supportive of Texas. The Ohio attorney general filed a strong brief in support of Texas. President Trump himself intervened and filed a brief. All of these were filed. But Friday evening, the Supreme Court dismissed Texas's lawsuit. And they dismissed it, saying that Texas had not shown standing. That is, Texas had not shown where the state of Texas was affected or harmed by the actions that may or may not have been illegal in the four states that Texas had sued. Now, we need to understand why the Supreme Court concluded that this was a lack of standing and therefore no real lawsuit. Article 3 of the Constitution says the Supreme Court has jurisdiction over cases and controversies. Now, to be a case or controversy, you have to have parties that are opposed to each other, parties that have a stake in the outcome, and therefore are going to diligently litigate the case because the best decisions are going to be made when both sides have been fully and effectively litigated. And also, the court doesn't want to take time to consider lawsuits that are just brought because somebody is interested in something but has no stake in it. For example, let's say New Hampshire were to adopt a law authorizing gambling casinos. I don't know what New Hampshire has in that regard. And I am outraged by this. So I decided to sue to have those casinos declared illegal. The court would say, you may have a valid argument, but you don't have any standing. You don't have any stake. This casino there in New Hampshire is not affecting you in any way, and therefore you don't have stake to sue. Well, the Supreme Court said that Texas did not have standing or stake in what was done in Pennsylvania and these other states, and therefore there was no actual case or controversy, and therefore the lawsuit had to be dismissed. As far as standing is concerned, Texas had alleged that one of the effects of the illegality of those states would be that Texas's electors would be outvoted by illegal electors from those four states. The result was that a president would be inaugurated that the people of Texas did not vote for and did not support, that a vice president would be installed who would preside over the Senate and therefore cast the deciding vote on tie votes in the Senate and probably cast that deciding vote contrary to the way Texas's two Republican senators would be voting. And so they alleged that they were affected in this way, but that probably could have been made stronger. And 
I have to say that I think the Texas Attorney General and the others who assisted in this did the very best they could. You have to remember, this only came to light in November. Normally, if you're bringing a lawsuit, you have a long time. You have months, maybe years, in which to do your homework and prepare the case and make sure all the pleadings are drafted properly. Texas has had to gather all of the affidavits proving fraud and illegality and irregularity and error. They've had to gather all this together. They've had to draft the proceedings and do so in just a matter of a few weeks. So it's been a very difficult task, and they have performed it heroically. But in this, they might have done better, and it might be appropriate that the lawsuit be refiled. And what they could allege, for example, is that Texas would be specifically harmed if Biden is inaugurated as president. For example, they could allege that if Biden keeps his campaign promises, that, among other things, he will stop building the wall, he will relax our rules concerning illegal immigration, that Texas as a border state will be flooded with illegal immigrants, and that this will have a drastic effect upon Texas's crime rate, economy, and many other things. They could allege that Biden will keep his promise that he is going to end fracking in the oil industry. And since Texas is really a major producer of oil, that would greatly affect Texas's economy, tax revenues, and many other things. They could allege that Biden, that Biden has promised that he's going to repeal the Tax Reduction Act of 2017, I believe it is, and that this will result in higher taxes for Texas residents. Other things like that that Texas could allege that would show more specific harm. Now, it may be that the Supreme Court has made the decision it made just because they don't want to get involved in hearing the case. And you can understand why they don't want to get involved. After all, if they were to decide to invalidate these votes, it would cause major unrest. And let's talk a little more about that after the break. you take advantage of today's low mortgage rates and save money? Rocket can. You could save hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing with Rocket Mortgage at today's near historic low rates. If your current rate is over 4%, with today's low rates, you could lower your payment by over $150 a month, saving thousands in interest every year. With a cash out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, you could consolidate and pay off high interest debt, tackle home improvements that could add value to your home, or even set aside cash for your child's future education. We've already helped over 1 million clients just like you reach their home financing goals this year alone. So remember this, what can give you the technology to refinance easily and save money? Rocket can. 
Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. That's 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Savings are based on quick and long-term data. Points and fees may apply. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing letter. License in all 50 states. Analysts can see your access.org. Number 330. You've heard me talking about MyPillow for three years. Folks, it's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a MyPillow. You can do it, too. 60-day money-back guarantee, 10-year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1-800-951-8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature is fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc. 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM 1492. Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation. Commission license number DC83. Service may adversely affect an individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action. Not a loan company. And once again, welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I appreciate in the last segment your sharing of uh, your thoughts on uh, the the procedures of the the Texas lawsuit as it uh, uh, was filed in the Supreme Court. I'm I'm a little I have to admit I'm a little disappointed they didn't hear it, but they may have some good reasons I guess and and maybe a desire not to muddy the waters would be one of them. But then again, I have to ask: Isn't that their job? Even if it's tough to to look at uh, some of those tough questions. If you want to win a popularity contest, the way to do it is not to become a judge. Judges, or at least not to become a good judge, because a good judge is going to make hard decisions. And some of those are going to be decisions that people aren't going to like. They have to consider the consequences of their decisions, though. And let's just face it, if, if they had intervened before the election, which, you know, normally I don't like judicial activism, but in this case, they probably should have. There were lawsuits to ask to have some of these advanced voting schemes declared illegal and unconstitutional, violative of the state legislature's requirements and violation of the Constitution that delegates this power solely to the legislature rather than executive agencies. But there were millions of people in these four states who voted pursuant to those advanced voting procedures, not knowing that they were illegal. And you can see where people would be very unhappy if those were not common. 
if the Supreme Court had intervened in this before the election, they could have stopped all that in advance and eliminated a lot of that problem. But as a matter of restraint, they chose not to. And I can understand why, but in this case, I think they, they should have. But anyway, the other thing is that if they were to simply give the election over to President Trump, you can imagine the kind of unrest there would be in the streets and so on. In fact, I have seen manuals that have been prepared by some of these leftist groups about how they would conduct disruption if, as they said, the right tried to steal the election and they had people convinced in advance that the right was going to try to steal this election. I'd only say, we're not trying to steal the election. We're trying to make sure that it is not stolen. We're trying to make sure that every legal vote is counted and that every illegal vote is not counted. And as I've said before in this program, there are two ways that you can be robbed of your right to vote. One of those is by not letting you vote. The other is by canceling out your vote with the vote of an illegal voter. But anyway, Texas' lawsuit was dismissed, and it may be that they should refile their lawsuit at this point, and make a stronger showing of standing, perhaps along the lines that I have suggested here. And it may be that the court would hear the case in that in that case. I kind of think maybe the court just simply doesn't want to hear it. And if we take away that excuse of standing, they'll just come up with another excuse not to hear it. But the question then we ask is, can they even do anything anymore? Because the Electoral College voted yesterday. And yesterday, that is the, the Monday, the, four, the 14th, not yesterday, a couple of days ago. Yeah, they voted. So it's over with, isn't it? No, not necessarily. Because nothing yet is set in concrete. And nothing will be set in concrete until those electoral votes are counted in a session of both houses of Congress on January 6th. Now, when that takes place, then we will, if somebody gets a majority of the vote, have a president and vice president elect. At this point, we do not, even though the media has coronated Biden and Harris as president elect and vice president elect, which at this point they are not. But things can be done even after the Electoral College voted on the 14th of December. Give you a couple examples where this has happened in history. One of these was in 1960. In 1960, you had Nixon running against Kennedy for president. And anyway, Hawaii was a new state at that time. And it was a very close election in Hawaii. Nixon had been declared the winner of Hawaii by 141 votes, and that continued up through the date in December in which the Electoral College met, and the governor of Hawaii had certified the Nixon electors from Hawaii. However, Kennedy was challenging the election results there, calling for a recount, and it went to court, and so Kennedy's supporters also chose a set of electors. And so both of these election results, the ones that were officially certified by the governor and the ones that were submitted by challengers, both of these were sent to the Congress to be 
considered there and deciding which ones to accept there on January 6th. Now, before January 6th, the federal, or rather a court, I'm not sure if it was a federal court, ruled that Kennedy had in fact won Hawaii and he'd won it by 115 votes. And so we have these two slates of electors, one that had been certified by the governor, the other that had been approved by the court that came to Congress at this time. And so on January 6th, the vice president opened the election results and had the two results from Hawaii. And by the way, guess who was vice president at the time? Who's that? Richard Nixon, one of the candidates. And in what was probably a very diplomatic act and an act that showed quite a bit of grace, Nixon simply asked for unanimous consent from the members of Congress that the Kennedy electors be counted rather than the Nixon electors. And that was approved, even though there were a number in both houses that were willing to challenge the results if Nixon had wanted them to do so. I would have to add, though, that Kennedy had won the Electoral College by more than a 100-vote majority, and so even if these had been cast for Nixon, it would not have affected the outcome of the election. Anyway, there's one instance where the electors that were chosen on December, the December date, which varies from year to year, but chosen when the Electoral College voted, were changed before they were counted on January 6th. Another example of this is in 1876. At this time, you have Democrat Samuel Tilden running against Republican Rutherford Hayes. Tilden won the popular vote with pretty substantially 50.9%, whereas after a few other parties are subtracted there, then Rutherford Hayes received only 47.9%. But it took 185 electors to be a majority. Now, Tilden had 184 electors, one short of a majority. Hayes had 165 electors, but three states had sent in conflicting slates of electors. Those were Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina. Together, they had 19 electoral votes. These are submitting conflicting electors to the Electoral College or to the Congress. And then also, we had one elector from Oregon. Now, Oregon had voted Republican. They'd voted for Rutherford Hayes. But one of the electors from Oregon that had been elected was found to be ineligible because he was a public official. And so his had to be discounted. And so we've got 20 contested electors. Now, if all 20 of these had gone for Hayes, Hayes would have 185 to Tilden's 184. So what did they do? Well, let's pause there for just a moment because we are up against the break, Colonel. We'll pick it up just the other side of these commercial messages. This is Constitution Classroom.
are back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, you left us on a cliffhanger <laughs> with uh, the uh, the Rutherford B. Hayes uh, e- election. Uh, where where were we? Let's pick up where you left off. Well, we had 185 elect- or 184 electoral votes for Samuel Sheldon, 185 needed. We have 165 for Rutherford Hayes, and we have three states where there are conflicting slates of electors and one conflicting elector from the state of Oregon. And if all 20 of these go for Hayes, Hayes will have 185. If only one of them goes for Tilden, Tilden will have 185. Well, if it had gone to a vote in the Electoral College and nobody had received a majority, then it would go to Congress. And the House would then choose the president, and each state would have one vote cast as a majority of the congressmen from that state chose to cast it. And the vice president would be chosen by the Senate, each senator having one vote. But instead, they worked out a compromise deal before the votes were counted on January 6th. Now, here was the compromise deal they worked out. They agreed, the Democrats agreed, that all 20 of those electoral votes could go to Rutherford Hayes, meaning he'd have 185, and he would be elected president. And in return for this, remember, most of the states that voted Democrat for Tilden were southern states. In return for this, Hayes and the administration would agree to end Reconstruction and pull all federal troops out of the South. So who really won that deal? We, I guess only history can decide that. But the point is, both of these demonstrate that electoral votes can be changed after they have been cast. We have a group of citizens in Arizona who have come together outside the Capitol to name a slate of electors. And some on the left have been calling that treason, which is utterly, utterly ridiculous. But it is unlikely, but it is conceivable that even though the governor has certified the Biden slate, that if evidence between now and January 6th demonstrates that, in fact, a majority of the vote, the, the popular vote in Arizona did go to Trump because of fraud conducted by the Democrats to steal it. If that is demonstrated, then it could be that the slate of electors that will be seated will be the Trump slate by this citizens group instead of by those certified by the governor. I'm told that in a couple of these other states, they have they have chosen other slates of electors to compete as well. So things can be done. Now it has to be said that the closer we get to January 6th, the less likely it is that there is going to be any change. But at any rate, it's not impossible. And if you are praying for a Trump victory, by all means, continue to pray. Now, this morning, before I came to the office, I was watching the, a hearing taking place before the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, the chairman of the committee, was conducting a hearing to investigate election fraud 
they had some very high-power witnesses on, on both sides, but especially among those who were alleging fraud, alleging that these lower court proceedings were in many cases proceedings where they had not been given the opportunity to present their evidence and, and so on. And one of the points that was made by Senator Peters of Michigan, a Democrat senator, one of the points he made was that there have been approximately 60 lower court decisions against President Trump on this. And there have been a few others that have ruled in favor of President Trump on a few points, too. The only point I would have made in response to Senator Peters on this is that these lower court decisions that have dismissed challenges by President Trump have been based on procedural things, whether or not there was standing to sue, whether or not the time limits had been met, other issues like this. They do not look at the actual evidence of illegality and fraud. And courts that have looked at that, from what I've seen, have generally ruled in favor of Trump. But if nothing else comes out of this, maybe there will be some clear evidence of the way elections can be stolen, and maybe that will result in better procedures for future elections. Personally, I think there is a better procedure, and that's the procedure that's been in effect for 200-plus years, and that is polls open on Election Day, ballot boxes manned by election workers, and printed ballots that people fell out by hand and that are counted by manual counting and preserved for recounts with poll watchers there from both sides watching to make sure there are no irregularities. I don't think any of this computer stuff that we're doing right now is any improvement on the other system. And whether or not these computers can do it faster, well, I just point out we are still seeing challenges and disputes over those computer elections almost a month and a half after the election took place. I don't ever remember in the past any election that was hand-counted with paper ballots ever taking that long to decide. So I'm of the opinion that that system is one that nothing we have today improves upon. Anyway, Brian, I don't know if you wanted to talk further about that or if you want to get into Article 1, Section 8 at this point. Let's go ahead and and jump into Article 1, Section 8. I appreciate uh, your analysis, and by the way, I agree What's proven, you know, the, the time-proven system of, of what works for elections seems to work. If it wasn't broken, I don't know that it needed to be fixed. It certainly would have saved us some heartache. Let's talk about uh, Article 1, Section 8. There's a particular part of this, too, that I know you were, were uh, going to talk about today, the Commerce Clause. Yes, and I think we'll have time to get into the Commerce Clause today. But we said last week that Article 1, Section 8... And Article 1, as we know, deals with Congress. Section 8 deals with the powers that we, the people, through the Constitution, have delegated to Congress, including the Necessary and Proper Clause, which says that they can also do such things as are necessary and proper to carry out the foregoing powers. But some of those specific powers that are set forth in these various clauses of Article 1, Section 8, one of these is the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. And although that has resulted in massive deficit spending, as far as the meaning of that clause, there hasn't been a whole lot of dispute. But then we come to one that will probably take the rest of our broadcast today to look at, and that is 
to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. I've usually told my students that when we look at this, we see that Congress has power to regulate commerce among the three ends, the three ends, interstate, international, and Indian. They can regulate commerce with the Indian tribes, which were regarded in a sense as nations within a nation, and American Indian law is really a whole other subject. And it's a difficult subject. It's taught in law school, but it's a very complex subject because it varies from one tribe to another and with the nature of the treaties we have with these various tribes. But Indian tribes are not states. They're kind of like nations within a nation. And the power of states to regulate what goes on on Indian reservations, the power of Congress to regulate, all of that is subject to some dispute. But as far as commerce with the Indian tribes, Congress has the right to regulate this. Congress also has the right to regulate international commerce, Congress for commerce with foreign nations, and that includes the setting of tariffs and excises and quotas and things like this. Now, some of that is done by treaty, which is another matter. A treaty requires the concurrence of two-thirds of the Senate, but if it's simply a regulation of commerce, then that's done by a majority of both houses under the Commerce Clause, that's international commerce. But the one that has been the most controversial has been regulating interstate commerce, that is, commerce among the states. Part of the reason for this clause has been that at the time the Constitution was adopted, states were treating each other as foreign nations. As far as commerce was concerned, you may recall that prior to our independence, each of these colonies was established by England, and really, the people in those colonies didn't think of themselves as American. They would have thought of themselves perhaps as Englishmen first, and as Virginians or Pennsylvanians second, but as far as thinking of themselves as American, that would be way, way down the line, and people in Pennsylvania might well think that they had more in common with England than they had with, let's say, Massachusetts. But anyway, so after independence was secured and before the Constitution is adopted, that is roughly 1781 to 1787. I'm Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer.
Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. The number one gift in this stressful year, relaxation from Homedics. Soothing stress for over 35 years, Homedics is the top home massage products brand with gifts for every aching muscle on your list with free shipping on orders over $50. Holiday supplies won't last, so avoid the rush while you can at H-O-M-E-D-I-C-S dot com. Get the perfectly relaxing, perfectly affordable gift now at Homedics.com and major retailers everywhere. We all have health goals, but let's face it, you are living in some fantasy world if you think you are suddenly about to start eating better. In fact, have you thought of this? How many different servings of fruit have you eaten today? How many servings of vegetables? And sorry, Dad, French fries and ketchup don't count. The experts recommend eating over 10 servings of fruits and vegetables each day. That's where Balance of Nature comes in. With three fruit and three veggie capsules, Balance of Nature gives you all your daily recommended servings and contains 31 different fruits and vegetables. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Change your life now by calling 800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. Or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code USA. And welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we had to go to break right as you got to describing what was happening between 1781 and 1787 uh, as as the states were trying to work out interactions, particularly commerce, between themselves. States were largely treating each other as foreign nations as far as commerce was concerned. If you were a Connecticut peddler and wanted to sell your wares in Massachusetts, Massachusetts might require you to pay a pretty hefty tariff on your goods in order to do so, tariff or excise or put a quota on it and so on. There were very strict regulations like that. And so one of the things that Congress was concerned with or that the Continental the Constitutional Convention, I should say, was concerned with, was freeing up commerce among these states. They wanted to make sure that, first of all, that Congress could impose regulations that would enable commerce to be regulated, but they also wanted to make sure that commerce was not unduly burdened by state regulations. Essentially, with some exceptions, they wanted a Connecticut peddler to be as free to sell his goods in Massachusetts or New York as he was to sell them in Connecticut 
itself, with some restrictions, of course. And so the Interstate Commerce Clause was adopted for two purposes, to give Congress the power to regulate and to limit the power of the states to regulate commerce. But a couple of things we need to note, we're going to look first of all in this program at Congress's power on interstate commerce, and then next week we'll get into how the states may regulate interstate commerce and what restrictions there are on that regulation. But one of the first things we need to note is that while Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce, they do not have the power to regulate intra-state commerce, that is, commerce within a state. For example, if I'm selling goods, let's say if I live in Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm selling goods in Atlanta, then that's interstate commerce, and Congress can regulate that sale. But the way it was traditionally understood, if I live here in Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm selling goods in Auburn, Alabama, that's intra-state commerce, and Congress does not have the power to regulate intra-state commerce. Also, the court has said that, con that commerce succeeds to manufacture and is not part of manufacture. Now, what they mean by this is that Congress cannot regulate local production. Let me explain what we mean by that. Even though, let's say, if I have a steel plant here in Montgomery, Alabama, that even though I might import goods from other states that I'm going to incorporate and put into the products that I'm making here in, in Montgomery, and that putting them together like that, traditionally thought, and importing things from other states to manufacture, that was not part of commerce. Commerce began only when I had a completed product and put that up for sale. And so local production could not be regulated. But gradually in the 1930s, we start seeing a series of cases by which the state blurs the distinction between commerce and production and blurs the distinction also between intrastate and interstate commerce. One example of this is a case involving a railroad. And this is a case that originates in Texas. And let's say that if a railroad is running from Shreveport, Louisiana, to Dallas, Texas, on from Dallas to, let's say, Abilene in western Texas, and on from Abilene to Albuquerque, New Mexico, clearly that is interstate commerce. and. Congress can regulate it by setting the rate that railroads can charge for that commerce. But let's say if I'm just running between Dallas and Abilene, that is intrastate commerce, and Congress should not be able to regulate that. But the court said in a railroad case, and this is before the 1930s, the court said that if I'm traveling from, let's say, Shreveport to Albuquerque, and then I have to buy one ticket from Shreveport to Dallas by interstate rates, and then another ticket from Dallas to Abilene by Texas rates, and then another ticket from Abilene to Albuquerque by interstate rates again. That is going to be confusing and messy. And so the court said if it is necessary to regulate intrastate commerce, 
in order to effect a comprehensive scheme of regulating interstate commerce, Congress may regulate intra-state commerce. That is, they could even regulate those local rates between Dallas and Abilene in order to have a uniform scheme of regulating interstate commerce. The key case where this really comes up then is in the 1930s, it is National Labor Relations Board versus Jones and Laughlin Steel. And up until this time, when Roosevelt had been adopting some of his New Deal legislation, some of which I would say bordered on socialism, that a conservative Supreme Court was commonly striking that legislation down by a 5-4 margin. But here, in National Labor Relations Board versus Jones and Laughlin Steel, we have the NLRB wanting to step in and arbitrate a labor dispute in Jones and Laughlin Steel's plant. Jones and Laughlin Steel says, bug off, you don't have authority to do this. And National Labor Relations Board says, yes, we do. Congress has given us the authority to do so because we have, and, and Jones says, if they did, that's unconstitutional. And the board said, no, we think it's constitutional because Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. And Jones says, that is absolutely ridiculous. What goes on in our steel plant is production, not commerce, and it is interstate, not intrastate. Case went to the United States Supreme Court, NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel, and we would put this case up there in the top tier of perhaps a dozen or so most influential cases in the history of the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that, first of all, if there are unresolved labor disputes in Jones and Laughlin Steel, that could lead to strikes. If there are strikes, that could shut down production of steel. If steel production is shut down, that could disrupt the flow of steel in interstate commerce. Therefore, if it is necessary to regulate local labor disputes in order to preserve the free flow of steel and interstate commerce, then Congress, through its National Labor Relations Board, has the authority to regulate interstate commerce. Well, you can see the nature of the reasoning, but you can see how that virtually obliterates the distinction between interstate and intrastate commerce. We come to another case a few years later, Darby versus United States, in which the court expands its ruling in Jones and Laughlin Steel and says that Congress has the authority to regulate any kind of production that may eventually lead to products being placed in interstate commerce. And then we have the case that probably goes the farthest of all in this area, Wickard versus Filburn, in which we have a regulation upon the production of grain. This is the 1930s, there is a depression and farm prices are way down. And so in order to bolster farm prices, that the Congress decides that we are gonna limit production. If we limit how much grain a farmer can produce, how many acres of wheat he can produce, then that will cut down production. If we cut down production, then supply goes down, if demand remains the same, then the price goes up, 
and that'll get the farmers out of their depression. Today, we just give them Prozac to get out of the depression, but they didn't have that in those days. Anyway, so Farmer Felburn raised more than the allotted 23 acres, but he sold all the excess wheat to, or he didn't sell it to him, he gave the excess wheat to his own livestock. And he said, how can you possibly say that the grain that I raise on my own farm and feed to my own pigs is interstate commerce? Well, the Supreme Court simply said that if you hadn't raised that excess wheat, you would have had to buy wheat in the market. That would have affected interstate commerce. Or if you hadn't, then you would have sold your wheat, and that would have affected interstate commerce. Either way, you have affected interstate commerce, so that carries it even further. And that's as good a place as any to uh, for us to jump off on this week's episode of Constitution Classroom. Thank you, Colonel Eidsmo. I look forward to our next conversation right here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Thank you.